We apologize for inconvenience, but due to technical error, there are about nine ten-second silences distributed throughout the recording. Thank you for your patience. During my time in Texas, when I lived there for about ten years, um, lots of interesting things in Texas, but one thing in particular um, that I think I'll just, I'll, I'll never forget, and it was a sound there's a sound that every once in a while you would hear, and it was a sound that would not just make me stop, but that would make entire cities stop what they were doing and look to the sky. That was the sound of a tornado siren. If you heard a tornado siren, no matter who you were, no matter how much money you had, no matter where you were, no matter what, you stopped. And you looked, because it meant that a tornado had been spotted and you were in danger. I remember the first time that I heard it, it was an eerie sound. And I, I looked around, I'm like, what is that? And they're like, that's a tornado siren. When you flee to bunkers or into basements, and you hide because you realize that there is, there is a storm coming that can sweep you away. This morning as we come to Revelation chapter 8 and 9, we see the trumpets of God sounding a warning to the earth that no matter who you are and what you have, that you need to listen up and to take refuge because there is a storm that is inescapable coming that you must be ready for, the storm of the fury and the judgment of God's wrath. to these seven churches in chapters two and three, and then four and five, we saw the throne room where Jesus is given the right, he has the right to open the seals of the scroll that contain the revelation of how God is working out his, his kingdom in history and how he is bringing judgment upon the world, how he is saving his people and how he is judging those who rebel against him. We have mentioned that our approach to this book is in kind of a cyclical form. Last week, we completed the first cycle, chapters 6 and 7, where we saw seven seals, where the first four were opened and there were judgments that came upon the earth. Then we saw chapter 5, where there were, uh, yeah, the, I'm sorry, the fifth seal, where the, the, the martyrs in heaven cried out, how long, O Lord, until you bring justice on the earth? Their prayer was likened to incense, which we'll see again this morning. Then in chapter, or the sixth seal, we saw the day of the Lord come. And then chapter seven, a pause and this heavenly interlude where we see that the sealing of all of God's people by the Holy Spirit, keeping them safe in the midst of the judgments that come, that though they will endure through them, they will be kept and their faith will not fail, but they will be held on by God until the very end when they are with him celebrating forevermore. That's where we ended last time. And this morning as we come back into chapter 8, we are coming to the, the seventh seal, which contains the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal is open, and it's like a nesting doll. Inside, out come, now, seven trumpets, which begin the, the second cycle here. 
The seven trumpets of warning or judgment is coming. Now, there's going to be a lot of things that we don't, at least I don't, understand as we go through these, these chapters. But the, the big message is very, very clear, and it's this. Hear the warning of God's wrath and repent before it is too late. Hear the warning of God's wrath and repent before it is too late. The way we're going to be walking through this text is two unequal portions in regards to how much text is there. The first is chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, where we're going to see the opening of the seventh seal which we briefly touched on a couple weeks ago, but need to come here as we see it unpacked and the meaning that's there in. And then chapter 8, verse 7, all the way through the end of the chapter where we're going to see the blowing of the first six trumpets. And then there'll be another interlude, and then we'll see the seventh trumpet later on. So the opening of the seventh seal here in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb, who is Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Verse 6, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. A few things to notice about this seventh seal as it's opened. The first thing to notice here is the silence. That after the seal is is open, there is silence. All noise in heaven is hushed because of what is about to happen here. If there was ever a quiet before the storm, this was it. That eerie silence in heaven because of what God is about to do. A silence of sobriety and suspense and expectation. into silence. And when I say awful, I don't mean awful because it's evil, but because of how grand it is. Listen to Zechariah chapter 2. God says to his people, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he stands up in his holy dwelling. God's people there in Zechariah chapter 2 hear of this coming day of the Lord, and they are to rejoice, but unbelievers are called to remain silent because judgment is coming. In Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20, Babylon is about to overtake Israel in judgment, and it says, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. 
in a day and age where we like to just shoot off at the mouth and tweet and post and do all this kind of stuff and just let our opinion be known, just know that there is one who is above all, that when he calls hush, everybody does so, even heaven. This moment of silence adds gravity here to the situation. This half hour is an idea of swiftness. It's quiet, but then the storm comes. This might be the loudest silence in history. After the silence, it's important for us to notice here the smoke of the incense. Verse 3, you've got this angel who steps to the altar with a golden censer. He's given much incense, which it says is mixed with the prayers of the saints. These are likely the prayers from back in chapter uh, 6, where the saints are crying out, How long, O Lord? How long until you bring justice against those who have oppressed us? It echoes all of the prayers of God's people from the the moment of the resurrection or the moment of the ascension. Come, Lord Jesus. End evil, end oppression, end the persecution of your people. Oh God, how long? Dear praying saint, your, your prayers have not been ignored. They have been reserved for this moment right here. The smoke rises before God. Do you notice here that the prayers go to God? This angel simply offers them up to him. God is the receiver of and responder to prayers. The the angel's actions here just offer offer imagery of God responding to these, these prayers. The believer's prayers are delivered to God by the incense of the censer. And then that same censer that offers up the incense is now filled with fire from the altar and it is flung upon the earth. This throwing of fire is an answer to the prayers of God's people for the purification of the earth. This is the day of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Lord, please end evil, end oppression. Here comes the answer through what is about to come. This is an image from Ezekiel chapter 10 where we see this Ezekiel sees, he says, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. God's throne is there on this this throne that has wheels on it. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city in judgment. Judgment is coming upon the city there in Ezekiel chapter 10 for the idolatry and the oppression that is in it. This scene in Revelation is a picture that that same sort of judgment is now coming upon the world for its idolatry and oppression and rebellion against God. In this, the the cycle of seals ends and it begins the next cycle, the sounding of the trumpets, which is the other thing to notice here. So we have silence, we have the smoke of incense, and we also have the sounding of the trumpets. Summon people to celebrate feasts like the day of Jubilee. But most prominently, they are blown to sound the alarm of coming war. One of the most prominent pictures, when you think of of a trumpet being blown in the Old Testament, what scene comes to mind? Yeah, the, the, the judgment of Jericho. 
Remember Jericho where Joshua and Israel about to enter the promised land after the exodus? They've been exodused from Egypt. They're about to enter the promised land. But what stands in their way? Jericho. And they march around the city for six days. And then on the seventh day, they blow their trumpets and the city crumbles. Which is interesting because as we go through this section, there's going to be six trumpets that are blown. Chapter 10 is an interlude. And then chapter 11, a city crumbles. Babylon, the worldly system, crumbles. It's a picture of Jericho, what's about to happen here. These trumpets signal the need for unbelievers to prepare for punishment. Much like Rahab, who, when she heard of what was coming, she cried out for mercy and took refuge in the God that she has heard about. And that's how these trumpets that are being blown are intended to lay upon the hearts of people. Take refuge in the Lord. Believers are to celebrate the coming restoration of all, and unbelievers are to tremble in fear. Verse 6, now these seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. As these are blown, we will see that the world should hear and repent, and the church should hear and hope. The same exact events are going to affect believers and unbelievers in different ways. That is the opening of the seventh seal and the announcement of the seven trumpets. I almost asked, are there any questions? And I'm like, I've got a bunch of questions, but that's okay. I'd love to take your questions, but not right now. Chapter 8, verse 7. You'll have more after this, okay? Chapter 8, verse 7, all the way through the end of chapter 9. The blowing of the trumpets. Now, the first four trumpets explicitly, and I think the fifth also alludes to it, are patterned after something else. As this whole thing is picture of Jericho, well, what preceded Jericho's falling? The Exodus. The Exodus preceded Jericho's falling. Well, how did God get his people out of Egypt toward the promised land? What did he use? Ten plagues. These trumpets are going to echo the plagues of the Exodus. They're not in the same order, but they, they function similarly. You'll remember that God sent the plagues as a judgment on the Egyptian gods, showing that they were false and they could not defend, they could not stand against him. The plagues showed God's sovereignty. It portrayed his power. It made his name known. It separated believer from unbeliever. These trumpets will do the same. Chapter 8, verse 7, the first trumpet, hail and fire from heaven. Verse 7, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. This fire and this hail that's hurled upon the earth in a way here in this, again, symbolic imagery echoes the seventh plague of the Exodus. Exodus chapter 9 reads this, Moses, Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent 
Thunder and hail and fire ran down the earth. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and one third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Notice here again the, the language. John sees something like, he uses that word continually, something like, something like, it's because it's symbolic here. Something like a burning mountain that plunges into the sea wreaking havoc on a third of the ocean. It's similar to what happens in the, the third trumpet, verse 10 of chapter 8. The third trumpet, the poisoning of the waters. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Trumpets two and three echo which of the plagues? The first plague. Remember when God turned the Nile into blood? Exodus 7.20, Moses lifted up his staff and he struck the water in the Nile and all the water turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink from the water of the Nile. You'll remember that as they worshiped the Nile in Egypt and God says, oh, you think it gives you life? I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill it. And he executes it and it turns to blood. So much so that they couldn't drink it. Well, similar here. The, the, the plague made the water like wormwood. Wormwood is a, it's a bitter herb that if you put into water, it makes the water undrinkable. As we hear this trumpet of two, it's the second and third trumpet, we're to hear of God doing the same thing on the earth as he did in the days of, of Moses and Israelites striking their gods. Chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, the fourth trumpet. Darkness on the earth. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third, of the earth, a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. This fourth trumpet resembles the ninth plague of the Exodus. Exodus 10, 21. Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. There's similar sorts of phenomenon described in Isaiah 13 and Ezekiel 32 and Joel chapter 2 and 3. Exactly what this darkness is, un unsure. Maybe legit like uh, lights dimming. But most certainly, as we will see here, in all of those passages from the Old Testament, they are all alluding to the darkness of idolatry that comes upon a nation and blinds them from the light. Which says, okay, so I hear, you, I hear these four trumpets. Now, how are we supposed to understand them? <laughs> well, here's my best, okay? This is, this is difficult, okay? When you, when you look through commentators, yeah, there's themes that are, that are similar. There's many differences. But 
I'm going to give you four things that I think as we read through these, we're supposed to, to follow along to help us as we interpret them. The first is to understand very clearly that these are punishments. These are punishments. These, this is an expression of God's wrath against rebels. All earthly securities are unraveled here. There is nowhere to hide from the storm of God's coming judgment. Awful. As we read this, we're supposed to see very clearly the kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And no celebrity, no culture, no civilization can escape. The sounding of the trumpet is intended to sober us. To make us realize that any of us, at any moment, before this God, who could stand? None. He will punish evil. This is intended to be seen as that. Another thing I think we should notice as we're studying through this section here is, is that these are partial. So there's punishment. It's also partial. Did you catch the word third, a third? It's mentioned 13 times here. These judgments are not presented as complete and comprehensive. These are, if you will, here and there judgments. It's not all happening at the same time, at the same level, globally. Now, what's interesting about that, however, is that the judgments intensify as we go through the book of Revelation. They are increasing intensity. The seals, if you remember, they affected a quarter of the earth. The trumpets now affect a third of the earth, which if you're not good with fractions, that's more. Then the bowls, clear. Then the bowls that are coming contain complete destruction. This is a literary device that God is using to show us, like birth pangs, the judgment is here and it's coming and it's increasing more and more and more until everything's consumed. This is creeping toward the climax of destruction and deliverance. Destruction for the unbelievers and deliverance for those who are gods. Here in the trumpets, we should see that they're partial. It's part of the birth pangs leading up. Also, and this I think is, I hope, one of the more helpful things to notice, that these are pictures. These are pictures. God, God is giving John a vision. He's seeing pictures that represent things that are happening. And, and these, these judgments should be understood first and foremost as fulfilling and referencing pictures from the Old Testament. We've said this throughout our study, and we've already seen a bunch of them, that the book of Revelation has some 613 allusions to the Old Testament. Every promise, picture, prophecy that God makes in the Old Testament about how he's going to restore the world that was once perfect but now is riddled in sin and idolatry, how he's going to restore it to himself through Christ, all of those pictures in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus and this revelation of Jesus is showing us how he fulfills them. 
So when you see strange symbols, the first thing you should think is, I wonder where that is in the Old Testament. Not, I wonder where that is on the news. Okay, now, sure, we'll see stuff in everyday life that I think is reflected in some of these, but first and foremost, these are pictures from the Old Testament, which requires these symbols to be interpreted metaphorically in light of the Old Testament. Now, I want to be very, very clear when I say need to be interpreted metaphorically. A metaphorical interpretation is not a denial of God's ability to actually perform these sorts of strange miracles, right? Can God throw giant hailstones from heaven? Yep. Can he make fiery mountains crash into the ocean? Yep. Can he make the sun darken? Yep, he did it for Joshua, made it stand still. He turned it off during the crucifixion. He could do whatever he wants to do. So I am not in any way undermining that and denying it. What I'm saying, And it helps you understand what's going on here. So the first trumpet, for instance. The language of hail and fire have, are used similarly throughout the Old Testament in various ways. For instance, Psalm 13, or 18, 13. David describes God protecting him from his enemies in everyday life kind of things, and in particular situations with Saul, as, as him bringing fire and hail. It's, it's, it's metaphorical of God's deliverance in the midst of it. Same sort of imagery is used in Ezekiel chapter 5, 12 of, of a famine during a time of a siege that's a form of a judgment because of idolatry. And then in Joel chapter 2, verse 30, you have the day of the Lord, the same sort of language that is used. So I think what we're supposed to see when we hear this language is, I don't think we should be forced to draw, well, it's an arrow to that that happened in 1974 on, on, in this place. I think rather what we're supposed to see is God is announcing to the world, I will deliver my people. I will stand with them. And those who stand with idols, the same sort of things that I did in the Old Testament, I'm going to do to them. There is judgment coming. Do not align with idols. Now, the second trumpet, mountains, right? So they often describe, so we see this mountain being thrown on fire, thrown into the, the water. Well, off mountains often describe kingdoms in the Old Testament. You see mountains describing kingdoms in Revelation in chapter, I think here, chapter 14, chapter 17, chapter 21. And then, believe it or not, Jeremiah chapter 51. When God judges Babylon, guess what? He talks about it being a mountain set on fire that he then throws into the water. Babylon shows up all the way through the book of Revelation as the world system, that the world system is going to be brought down. And there's different images used for Babylon. You have here, I think, a burning mountain that's going to be thrown and cast down to the earth. You have um, the, the great prostitute later on in in, in chapter 17 and 18, you have the great city who's brought down. She's used in different um, metaphors, pictures to represent this world system. So I think what we're supposed to see when we, we catch this, at the very least, is that God will bring down Babylon. He will bring down the world system. We're supposed to see that every civilization and every culture that oppresses God's people will be cast down. So it will be devastating to side with it. 
whether it be Babylon or Greece or Rome or China or America or Saudi Arabia, God will judge every nation, every people, every culture that rebels against him and oppresses his people. One more example, the third trumpet, water turned to wormwood. Very interesting that in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 17 and 18, the bitter root, aka wormwood, is a symbol of idolatry that affects the people. So will God, you know, we read this, should we say, will God throw an asteroid in the future into the waters? Maybe. But what we're supposed to see even more clearly is what Deuteronomy clues us into is that right now the waters of the world, meaning everything that people consume, whether it be news, entertainment, religion, false religion, is poisoned with the delusion of idolatry, which is bitter wormwood, that if it gets in you, it's going to destroy you. It's the same way that Jesus spoke about the leaven. Remember, he's on the boat with his disciples. They're hungry, and he's like, hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they think he's talking about, like, going over to Best Buns and getting some bread. They're like, no, no, no. No, I'm talking about, I'm talking about the leaven, the teaching of the Pharisees. He uses the same sort of imagery for, to represent a different kind of, of, of teaching. So how should we interpret these trumpets? I think first and foremost, metaphorically, as fulfillments of Old Testament warnings that God will judge idolaters and oppressors and that those who align with those systems will be affected yeah, to their detriment and to their destruction. So do not align with it. Because preview is that while these judgments are happening now metaphorically and increasingly so they are they are no less literal or real than the ones that will come at the very very end so can all of this stuff increasingly happen at the end Certainly, God can do whatever he wants. I don't know, all I know is 2 Peter chapter three says he's gonna turn the world into a ball of fire and refine the whole thing so that it will be free from sin. However God wants to do that, I mean, he is, he is free to do, obviously. But what we, what we see here is we are supposed to draw these lines and see that this is a preview moving toward that. These sorts of judgments will increase in severity until Jesus returns and brings judgment in an unreserved, undiluted, unstoppable, undeniable way. So right now, I just want to be really clear, right now we can speculate about how some of these things are experienced now, and I think we are supposed to see that as a warning to not align with idolatry and and the, the age that we live in and the worldview. But be certain that when Jesus returns, there'll be no guessing. It will be evident and clear. Hear this from Luke 21 that we read earlier. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. These trumpets are announcing to the churches in Revelation chapter two and three in the first century, 
through every age, even to our age, judgment is coming. Do not align with Babylon. It will be cast down. It is being cast down. Those who drink of that water will be, yeah, will follow in the judgment. Do not. He warns, warns, rather, take refuge in the Lamb, in Him, who will deliver you. That's the first four trumpets. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to all those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So John sees these four trumpets blown. He sees this picture laid out before him and now his attention is adjusted upward to this strange speaking eagle crying out, woe, woe, woe. Woe is a term that's used to describe grief and sorrow and distress and horror and dread. Three times the, the repeating of it is to emphasize the content. There's only one other place you see something repeated three times in the Bible. Where is that? Holy, holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. Those who oppose him, woe, woe, woe. What this means is this flying eagle thing is cluing John into the fact that the next three trumpets, number five, number six, and number seven, that they're going to increase in severity. It's getting worse. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, we see the fifth trumpet. Locusts from hell. It's the only thing I could think to describe these things. The fifth angel, verse 1, blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, also translated the abyss. And from the shaft rose smoke. Like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but do not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them 
the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, he is called Apollyon. So if you have a picture Bible, this is where you have really strange things next to that text. I googled a few of these things last night, and it was, it was interesting. This scene sounds like something out of a science fiction horror movie. We see this, this star, uh, likely Satan in light of verse 11, given a key to the bottomless pit. And from this pit come these stinging locusts. Now, when you think of locusts, there's probably two places in the Old Testament that you might draw from. Where's the first one? The Exodus, the eighth plague. Right, the eighth plague, Exodus chapter 10. They were a form of judgment against Egypt because they, would, they were oppressing God's people. Well, we see locusts described as a form of judgment in Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Amos, Nahum. And then, of course, one book, you could even call it the locust prophet. Who's that? Joel. I'm sure Zechariah has some too, but Joel. This, this plague echoes the plague of Joel. Speaking of the locusts, he says, A nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Some of the same things that were described there about these critters. Now, what are these locusts? Well, um, the word like is used 11 times which is intended to clue you in that John didn't know either. He says they're like this, they're like that. They are, yeah, I mean, when you start looking up what people think these are, you've got Apache helicopters, right, bringing war. You've got apostate popes bringing heresy. You've got presidents and princes with their tyrannical rule. You've even got people saying this is the predator and Schwarzenegger comes to get him. You've got everything on this deal, like what these things are. And, and yes, it's, it's strange to us, and that's where the humor is. But, but as we see this, we know this is, this is not funny. Whatever terrifying things these are, it is intended to strike dread in the hearts of those who hear, these th- hear about these things. So what can we tell about them from, from the text here? The first thing that I think is, is pretty clear demonic realm. We'll see it later on in the book of Revelation, but you'll remember when Jesus was casting out demons from the pigs in Luke chapter 8 verse 31. You remember the demons, they cried out to Jesus and they begged him not to they begged him not to command them to depart to the abyss. Wherever this place is, those demons didn't want to be stuck down there. Well, in some sense, whatever that is, it's released. There's some sort of demonic unleashing here at the end that is happening. So they're demonic. Second thing to notice here is that they're directed. They're directed. They're not just free agents, right? These demonic beings have a leader, verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, which means the destroyer. 
This is, of course, Satan. Satan is the one who oversees these demons. Now, Paul's want to be very clear. God is the one who rules over all these things. He is the one who's permitting and ordaining these things as they come to pass. But Satan is the one driving the evil here. God is doing no evil, though he's sovereign over it, and will use it all for his perfect purposes in the end. But here, Satan, we know, the scriptures tell us, John chapter 11, he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, and these locust-like demons are coming to do the same thing. They are his agents of destruction. Now, I want to be really clear, unless we get something twisted here. It says they have as a king over them this, this angel, Satan. There's a misconception about Satan that I think we, we want to we put away with, and it's this, that Satan does not rule hell. A lot of times we picture Satan as this one, this, this little guy in a red jumper with a, with a pitchfork, and he's ruling in hell and going around and sticking people, right? Like, that's how Satan wants you to think about him. But that's not as he is. Satan is a demonic fallen angel who seeks to destroy but his days are destined for judgment. He himself and all his demons and all those who follow them, which this book is intended to warn you to not follow them, will be tormented under God's wrath forever and ever. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41? He says that hell was created for the devil and for his angels. Satan will not rule in hell. He will be eternally condemned there. But now, in this age, before that moment, he, on a leash, is free under God's oversight to carry out his evil bidding, which God uses for his glorious purposes. They're demonic, they are directed, and they are also destructive. They're destructive. These demonic beasts, it says, they are tormenting. Some sort of way, there's, there's pain that they are inflicting is likened to a scorpion sting. I've never been stung by a scorpion, but I've heard it's bad. Well, God allows this satanic army to bring some sort of physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological affliction on unbelievers, though not killing them outright. And it's so severe that people are desiring to die. How are we supposed to think about what this, what this, what does this mean even now, right? So does, are, will there be demons that are f loose to roam on the earth afflicting people? Yes. I mean, it was clearly happening in Jesus' day. Do you remember when Jesus, I mean, he would, he would come up to these people who were being afflicted by demons who were hurting themselves and trying to throw themselves into fire and cutting themselves and harming other people and blaspheming. He says that sort of affliction will only increase. But it doesn't always have to look that same way. This is where I'm going I'm to pause and just give. One of the things that Revelation is intended to do for us is to turn the lights on to see the world around us rightly. To recognize that the world around us is not aiming at helping you love God. It is designed to lift your affections not upward, but downward, to pull them downward away from God to the fleeting things. 
that's fueled by deception and deceit and, and idolatry. So, the way I think it's helpful for us to think about, how is this, how's this sort of demonic attack happening right now, which, again, seems to be increasing as we get closer to the end? We shouldn't just see this as, as you're sitting in your house and some demon creature comes in and stings you, and you're like, ah, I didn't see that thing coming. Like, that's, that's not how this is, I don't think this is how this is working. Romans chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 2, chapter 4, all speak about how demons work through natural means. It's a demonic system that we live and we operate in. They used natural means like governments, like drugs, like pornography, like money, like idolatry, like false religion. All of the things that we're going to see in just a moment in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, that the people won't give up. They won't repent of these things because they love them, which is evidence they've bought into the satanic propaganda of the day. Demons use these everyday elements to enslave, to deceive, and to torment unbelievers. Now, that does not mean they do it against people's wills. Unbelievers love their sin. They hate the consequences of their sin. I know, this was half my life. I understand. Demons may do more. So as we progress on toward the end, there, there may be more sorts of affliction and possession and all kinds of stuff like that. But they're not going to do less than this sort of tormenting through the increasing of temptation and as we see societies embracing it more as normal. The way you can know that a society is under demonic attack is when righteousness begins to become seen as evil and where unrighteousness begins to become paraded and adored and delighted in. Just if you will, and be careful which commercials you watch, but just watch Super Bowl commercials tonight. Watch what is normalized. Watch the message behind it. I remember the, as soon as I became a believer, one of the things I, I did one night, I sat down, I just started watching TV, and I remember when the commercials came on, all of a sudden it hit me, this is all a bunch of lies. Now listen, I was a marketing major. I kind of knew that that's what you were doing when you were doing advertisements. You're like, hey, listen, your life's going to be horrible if you don't buy this Hyundai. You'll never have a friend. You know, all this kind of stuff. Like, that's, that's what you're supposed to make people feel. But the whole thing is aimed to provoke discontentment with what God has given you and to look to something else or someone else or something else to give life. And ultimately, it's going to be rooted in sin and casting off God's design and embracing whatever the age of the day says. They will grow deeper and deeper ensnared into their own sin, which they willfully give into, that is driven by the world system fueled by satanic temptations. Just listen to this from Romans 1. A terrifying testimony of people's resisting God. God gave them up to dishonorable passions, sexual immoralities, exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, receiving in themselves, in themselves the due penalty of their error 
What he's saying is when you give yourself to sin, there's a punishment in itself. The enjoyment of sin is actually a punishment in itself because it deceives you into thinking there's life here in it. Rather than understanding that there's joy and peace and freedom in God. And he goes on in that same thing. He continues with envy and murder and strife and deceit and gossip and slander and disobedience to parents and heartlessness. That all, that sin is a delusion that Satan wants to sell to us. And it ever increases in normalcy as we get closer to the end. I also just want you to notice here, do you notice how Satan treats those who are faithful to him? Satan is not your friend. When he comes and brings you a temptation, it's, he wants you to think it's for your good. He afflicts those who are faithful to him to steal the happiness of their life, true happiness, which is only in Christ, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus does. Jesus was afflicted for those who were unfaithful so that in him they could be born again and sealed and then given that spring of water that leads up to eternal life, the exact opposite of the bitter waters. Jesus came to deliver us from this present evil age, says Romans. This is what we're seeing here. We're seeing a picture of that in vivid imagery. One other thing to notice um, about, about this, there's a, this is parallel to what's happening in, in Revelation chapter 7. So in Revelation chapter 7, we saw the sweet security of God's people who have been sealed by his grace. But here, the events of the last days are viewed from the vantage point of unbelievers as they suffer the effects of their own rebellion. The same events are functioning in two ways. It's humbling and strengthening the hope of God's people in God and his deliverance, and it's hardening and embittering people against God who will not repent. Another thing to notice here. Demonic, directed, destructive, and deterred. Deterred. These demons afflict afflict humans, but there's one group of people that they are forbidden from touching. Did you catch that there? God's people, verse four, they attack only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These sealed ones are the sealed ones from Revelation chapter seven, the 144,000 represent all the believers. So this is important to notice here. Christians are on the earth in the midst of all of this tribulation. What can Christians expect to endure? Well, there is certainly pain, but but they they are protected here from the affliction of these demons. They're not duped into what everybody else is getting duped into. Again, this doesn't mean that you can't give in to temptations to sin or feel the effects of sin. It doesn't mean that there will not be physical pain. It doesn't mean there will not be spiritual temptation. It does not mean there will be despairing moments and seasons. It does not mean there won't be persecution, even physical death. But it does mean that because you're sealed, if you are in Christ, because you've repented of your sins and trusted in him, that you are sealed by God's Holy Spirit and he will keep you. He'll keep you through this. The demons are not allowed to attack the believers.
Which is what the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are supposed to be hearing in this. They're supposed to be strengthened. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And then he blows the sixth trumpet, which I'm going to read. I'm going to make a couple comments on, and then I have just a few applications. Verse 13, these hellish horsemen. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out from their mouths. But these three plague, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. You notice how it's increased? By the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For the tails are like the serpents with heads and by means of them they wound the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Similar strangeness to the fifth trumpet here, but it helps us to know that, that the four angels bound at the Euphrates, the Euphrates was the boundary in Israelites' mind between them and their enemies. So the image here is that there's an enemy army coming against you. Jeremiah chapter 46 depicts an army of horsemen described in similar ways here with troops that are innumerable coming against Jerusalem to judge them because of their idolatry. I think it's the same sort of just intensified thing that we saw in chapter 5. Some sort of demonic calvary here. 10,000 times 10,000, twice that. 200 million. Now, if I'm going to start describing what this is, I'm just going to start making stuff up. Just like everybody else who wrote a commentary on this. We don't know exactly what these things are. So while the peculiars, or particulars here are peculiar and unclear, the point is not. We are to hear the warning of God's wrath and repent before it's too late. Which is what we notice the people here at the end. Even at the end, with whatever this sort of unleashing that God is, is sending on the earth as a form of judgment against unbelievers, they still won't let go of their idols. It's like Lot's wife coming out from Sodom and Gomorrah who just wanted to go back. It's important to notice here that after all of this and in the midst of all of this, they still said, God, you will not rule over me. And they would not repent. People love their sins so much that despite all the warnings and all the suffering and all the time, the patient time that God has shown toward them, they only harden their hearts just like Pharaoh during the Exodus. They will not surrender to the plagues of wrath that come upon them. When we began our study in the book of Revelation, we said that the book of Revelation is not just meant to be, under, to, to be heard, 
and figured out, but it's intended to be obeyed. I'm going to give you six brief takeaways for how this should, could help you in the days ahead. the prayers of his people. He shows us what he's doing and he calls us to join in. Join in with the Christians of every age crying out, come Lord Jesus, end evil. Do not despair in the days of evil, but look toward God and lift your prayer. He will answer soon and very soon. Number two, see sin for what it is. So pray for God's justice. Number two, see sin for what it is. Sin is demonic affliction. It leads you away. Giving into sin leads you away from the joy and the peace and the freedom that God promises. See that behind every temptation. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden when Satan came and said, no, listen, God's holding out on you and consider the, the horror that it's brought. See sin for what it is and where it's trying to lead you. Number three, do not be on the right side of history. Number three, do not be on the right side of history. The call of every age is to go with the flow, to deny Jesus, to avoid persecution, to be accepted by the spirit of the age. Whatever's cool today, beware of. Everything that's trendy, beware of. I'm not just talking about what shoes you wear. I'm talking about ideas. There's continual temptation to be on the right side of history. The book of Revelation is intended to help you give the view of eternity and to say, be on the right side of eternity. Even if that continually puts you on the wrong side of history, out of step with the culture. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart. Number four, see suffering as a signpost. See suffering as a signpost. As you encounter suffering... Let it remind you that this world is not your home. Remember that there is, all suffering is a result of sin generally, not necessarily your your sin specifically. There may be suffering because of your sin specifically, but every bit of suffering that we ever have in this life is because of the curse that's upon it because of sin. As you suffer, as you see these sorts of things happening, let it move you to pray. To remind you that this world is not your home. To lift your eyes and your heart and your hope to God who will soon deliver you from it. See suffering as a signpost to cry out for God to help you and comfort you. For he will. Number five, do not resist repentance. Do not resist repentance. This is specifically for for those of you who are here today who, who know yourself to not be a Christian who know that you are, you are resisting God. You're resisting his word. You're resisting the call to turn from your sin and to believe in Jesus. God gives you a preview here of the end to show that judgment is coming. This is not some scare tactic to get you into a club. This is God's love and his mercy. There's mercy in the trumpets. Hear it. Turn today unto Jesus and be saved from the wrath that is to come.
Do not resist the repentance that he calls for. And then sixth and finally, for those of you who are believers, rest in the safety of God's seal. Rest in the safety of God's seal. God's people are not destined for wrath. There will be persecution. There will be trial. There will be pain. There will be tribulation. But rest in the fact that he has sealed you he's coming soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. I'm going to give you just a moment of quiet, silent reflection to consider some of the things that you've heard here, and then I'll, I'll pray for us, and then we'll move to song. Father, we thank you for your words of warning. And God, we pray that you would help us to not receive them lightly. Lord, help us to not excuse away disobedience because there's things that are here that we don't understand. Lord, you've been as plain as, as we need you to be. Let us not miss your message. God, would you move us to be a people who pray for you to bring justice? Would you give us eyes to see sin for what it is? Would you give us courage to not always try to be with it and adopt the, the trendy stuff of this age? God, would you help us to see every bit of suffering as a signpost pointing us to you? Would you help us to not harden our heart and to resist repentance? Or would you help us to flee unto Jesus and to rest in the safety of the seal that he puts upon his who he purchased with his own blood? And we pray, Father, that you would send him soon and very soon. We pray this in his name. Amen.